Yeah, the timeline for crypto just keeps getting more and more surreal. Like every time we say, wow, it's, uh, you know, you will look back and like it, it was crazy. And then it's like, oh, no, wait, it's crazier. And so I'm just going to stop saying it because I guess we should expect the totally unexpected. But very exciting times, um, right, sir? Indeed, indeed. I, w- I will. Uh, I will say it's not just crypto, though. It is uh, the entire financial system. It is crazy time. So, but anyways, it is good to have you back. I know you uh, took a couple little time off. Uh, sounds like it was a good trip. It's good to have you back. I, I um, obviously been following a lot of what's been happening, and yeah, there's just a lot to cover. Yeah, I really hope people aren't watching on YouTube. I feel like I'm looking real pasty white coming out of the winter. You uh, clearly got some some sun, looking pretty tan these days. Uh, this is not a good contrast going on here. We need a little like uh, the video editors need to. Uh, it's it's yeah. really the light <laughs> issue, uh, you know. But <laughs> um. Sweet man, where 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 uh, where should we? Oh, I have uh, housekeeping to cover. Um, one is Blockworks. Um, uh, three three housekeeping things. One is for people who listen to Bell Curve. We just announced that uh, next season is going to be on MEV, and that Hasu is uh, uh, from Flashbots is going to co-host that. Um, so really excited about that. The second piece of housekeeping is that we announced um, that Digital Asset Summit, which is our buttoned up kind of institutional conference that we've been hosting for four years now in both New York and London. Uh, we are moving it to Washington, D.C. for 2024. Uh, 2024, D.C., huge year politically, but also just um, we believe that D.C. is now the most important city in the world when it comes to crypto uh, and that the decisions made in D.C. with regulators, lobbyists, and politicians is um, at least short-term going to really impact the direction of crypto, So, and which, which obviously we're going to talk a lot about on this episode. So we, we're moving Digital Asset Summit to DC and partnering with the folks at the Blockchain Association, Jake and uh, Kristen and uh, and the team over there. Um, and then the third piece of housekeeping is that Blockworks announced a uh, grants aggregator yesterday um, or earlier this week. Yeah, so we're calling it Grant Farm, uh, Yield Farming in the Bull, Grant Farming in the Bear. Uh, and if you, we, we have 310 different grant programs listed and 125 different active RFPs. So if you are look if you or your company is looking to go pick off uh, grants or RFPs or bug bounties, we should have everything listed there. But if you don't see something, uh, if your protocol or your team or your DAO is not listed, uh, the grants are not listed there. Just uh, hit me up, uh, DM me on Twitter, and we can get those added ASAP. So that's the Blockworks housekeeping for you. That's uh, well, that's really exciting. The grant stuff for sure. Yeah, yeah, uh, we're we're pumped about it. Uh, we're pumped about DAS too moving to DC. So. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, there's just so much that's happening. Uh, I would, I would agree that uh, DC has become in- increasingly important, and they've, they've ratched like they certainly. I, I keep thinking about that episode we recorded with Jake and Rebecca last year. Uh, I was in October or September, and he said, "Yeah, like we can expect a lot of more kind of enforcement actions and and regulatory activity." And you know, here we are, and you know, fast forward, it seems like every other week it's they've just been really increasing the the activity so maybe we just like tick through all of them and then and then come yeah, let's there, are, there are three big ones from this week there's coinbase uh coinbase and coinbase is obviously the biggest then then sushi and then uh justin sun um why don't we start with coinbase so basically the um i'm gonna read paul um uh what's his last name the chief legal officer uh paul Gre- Grewal, uh the chief legal officer at coinbase i'm gonna read some of his tweet he posted a nice twitter thread 
Um, basically, Coinbase just received a Wells notice for, for the, uh, from the SEC. And for uh, people who aren't familiar with Wells notices, they, they specifically are not a huge deal, but they usually precede an enforcement action. And specifically, this enforcement action, it seems like, is going to uh, is going to be around the SEC targeting Coinbase's uh, both spot market regarding some of the coin uh, tokens they're listing, their staking service, uh, and potentially their their wallet and Coinbase Prime. So it's pretty big enforcement action that they think is coming down the pike. Um, let me read you some important things that I that stood out to me from the blog post and from Paul's tweet. One is that over the past nine months. Coinbase met with the SEC more than 30 times. For the uh, people trying to do some public mental math here, that is three times a month, more than three times a month. That is almost every single week Coinbase has been meeting with the SEC, sharing details of their business to try to build this path together towards uh, registration and regulation. And what Paul said is that um, during the, the past several months, the SEC has basically given Coinbase zero feedback on what to change and how to register. And that instead, today they received a Wells notice. And the backstory here is that when Coinbase filed to go public in uh, 2021, the SEC, uh, I don't know if you ever actually read the SEC, but it was so freaking detailed into Coinbase's like the, business. The S1, you mean? Uh, excuse me. Yeah, the S1. It was yeah. so freaking um, detailed on their entire business. And uh, I went I went back and, and kind of skimmed it. And they had 57 different references to staking and details on their asset listing process. Uh, process. And so the SEC re reads, reads the S1, approves them to go public, knowing all those details. Now they have changed their mind basically on what is allowed. And instead of having a conversation with Coinbase, they've basically just regulated by enforcement action. And um, so what, what Paul uh, and the team did over there is that last July, almost 12 months ago, they filed a petition with the SEC calling for more regulatory clarity, um, which I think has kind of become the consensus in crypto, which is that we used to not want regulation. Now it's like, okay, just, just give us regulation, but just like, just give us a framework here. Just give us some. By the way, that that sentiment and approach has been going on for the last like six years. Like, yeah, just just give us still became fundamentally important, and there was more something more than Bitcoin. People, yeah, just went to the SEC in in different approaches and and styles and said, "Can we just get clarity?" Like I've been in that position. And right. it's not, it's not coming. Right. Well, I remember, do you remember Jake, Jay Clayton, obviously. So, so uh, Clayton was not super friendly on crypto, but he was at least always willing to take a meeting and always willing to have a conversation and to work with folks and to give them feedback. And under Gensler, the SEC basically just stonewalled these companies. And, uh, and, and now the strategy, we talked about this when uh, Rebecca and Kristen were on the podcast. The strategy is just like, stay as far away as possible. Coinbase has taken a different approach and is like, look, we'll power through it. We've got a lot of money behind us, good policy and legal team. We're going to go meet with them. And that has completely, uh, they, I think the SEC, it's fair to say, kind of backstabbed them. And the reason this is so crazy is that, you know, Coinbase is a licensed and regulated crypto business in a bunch of, you know, first world countries like Australia and Germany and Singapore and Ireland, and they're even regulated by other U.S. federal regulators, right? They have a DCM and a DCO license from the uh, CFTC and many other U.S. state regulators uh, who give out money transmitter licenses. The the SEC, I think, has basically gone rogue here, and they remain the sole outlier here. Uh, so that that's my that's my like 
high level overview on what's happening and like a, a couple of my thoughts, but I'd be curious to get your take on this. I go back to, so there was an enforcement action similar to Kraken and they settled on their staking program. There was an important distinction, I think, where the the same, like the Coinbase folks coming out and came out and said, our staking program is structured very differently and this is why it's compliant. Whereas Kraken was paying not based on like algorithmic, like network inflation and, 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 and staking rewards, it was more at their discretion. And that was, I think, the issue with the Kraken staking program. Coinbase, on the other hand, and my understanding is they just, they're just flowing through whatever is being paid out by a particular blockchain. So if you're staking your ETH, CB, you know, ETH, then the reward itself is based on the staking emissions, like the rewards that are being emitted by the blockchain. And, and then of course they're taking some sort of fee for providing that service. Um, and I think that's very different. Um, and so it's just interesting because then that no longer seems to be the case. And so I would be really curious to understand then what is the issue with Coinbase's earn program? Um, is it all of just full on all of the staking kind of earn programs or is it a particular blockchain, particular specific token itself or the, um, that has been problematic? Um, and yeah, the second one is kind of the registry, like the listing process, which I mean, they seem to think that the, it hasn't changed since they IPO'd. And then the question is, which assets in particular uh, are problematic or is it all of them or just, I mean, it gets to the broader question of, you know, which has been the, in the past, like they, they just go after certain tokens that they deem to be securities, but they do it in a, in a sort of a way, which is very specific. Um, so yeah, a lot to unpack. Um, I really like the thread that, um, uh, Brian Armstrong came out saying, like said, Hey, listen, we, we will fight this. Um, he made a great analogy said it, it sounds like, you know, um, you know, the rules, like we were clear to do this in April, 2021. And then the, the referee just came back and said, Oh no, we're going to change the actual ruling here on the field, which is like really, um, I can appreciate why it's really frustrating. And so, I mean, I tend to view this as there are three, I think really important regulatory kind of processes going on in the U S one of them, of course, is now Coinbase. The second one is the grayscale, um, the grayscale one, like kind of like the, I think there, there's a lot of things going on there, but a part of it is like, you know, approving an ETF. Um, and so I, I guess those two are really important for crypto because they will hopefully provide just more clarity. Um, and I think if you just look at how the judges have been responding in the grayscale case, it's really been kind of more favoring like grayscale, I, I would say, and, and like toning down the the like the SEC's kind of you know what they are actually entitled to kind of regulate and go after and so look I mean I I think it's very early to say if that's going to be the case here but I certainly think one Coinbase has a lot of resources to fight this and they want to do that and second I think it just brings more awareness in the space and I think we'll also shed light on broader sentiment which is the SEC as a reminder for folks doesn't have the ability to like implement like policy can regulate through like these enforcement actions, but that doesn't mean that, that that's not the rule of law. I mean, it's a, it sets a precedent for sure, but it's not like rulemaking. That's up to Congress. And so Brian, of course, also said, hey, listen, it's really important, as you said, uh, of how we elect into, you know, uh, congressmen and, and other elected officials. And I think that's going to be a big part of 
the next election cycle in the U.S. Yeah, here's here's um, I think one of the most important things to know about this is that Paul and Brian and the whole Coinbase team. I mean, first off, pretty remarkable response from a publicly traded company to come out against the SEC like this. Like, first off, just you know, kind of air claps for them right now. Um, the Coinbase lawsuit is going to take forever. There are going to be facts if if there are facts to fight over, which Coinbase will find facts to fight over. Uh, it will go to an appeal, and uh, Gary, Gary's going to be gone in two, in two years max. Like if you talk to people on the Hill, if you talk to people in DC, he is one of the most detested people in in DC right now. I don't think he actually cares about regulating Coinbase. I don't think compliance of Coinbase and like regulation here is the goal. I think the only thing I think the goal for Gary right now is 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 pure chaos. I think his goal, the the like lawsuit itself, is the goal. Compliance mm. and regulation of Coinbase is not the goal. The goal is to distract and delay long enough to throw all of crypto kind of to basically throw it off. Uh, and 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 I think that's why I think that's important to recognize yeah. here. Well, just in summary, like I said, three. I said mentioned two. The other one is uh, the Ripple case XRP, which has been oh, yeah. going on for years. So in summary, Coinbase, Grayscale, plus Ripple, three independent cases, I think will, my hope is expedite regulatory clarity in the US, which we haven't had. Um, but you're right. I mean, there there's some conspiracy theories going on around like, is this just a broader kind of full on attack on crypto when you then, you know, layer on top of what has happened to Signature and Silvergate and the manner in which that has happened. And then you know, the USDC situation. And then my understanding is that Kraken also is in a bit of a tight spot here because I think ACH withdrawals and deposits just are no longer enabled. And I think a lot of, basically they're going after the on-ramps for crypto. And if you shut that down, then it becomes really problematic to get exposure to the space. And, you know, it really hinders the space from a growth perspective. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I don't want to put on my, I, I just, I just fully agree with you. I don't want to pull up, put on my tinfoil hat too much here, but it's very interesting that this is coming at the same time as kind of the, um, what's the right way to put this? Like not, not the collapse of the financial system, but like SVB and signature and all, all mm-hmm. just like the, uh, first Republic and all, and, and the banking system having its biggest catastrophe since, uh, since 2008, the, mm-hmm. if you want to put on the tinfoil hat, you say that here, here's, here's the take. The regional banks and uh, the two biggest risks to centralized financial control and CBDC implementation in the United States are regional banks and crypto. And if regional banks and crypto won't back down and aren't naturally dying out, you have to systematically eliminate both of those. And um, that would be my tinfoil take of like, the goal here is financial control and better surveillance and CBDC implementation, which is which feels inevitable at this point. And uh, there are two things standing in the way uh, for, for, yeah. for that to happen. And it's uh, crypto and, and regional banks. And um, when you think about Gary, and it's like when, when something like this is happening, it's like, what is his motive here? Gary wants to take Yellen's job, right? Gary, Gary wants to be in that treasurer seat. And um, that would be a role that like directly looks over financial control and CBDC implementation. And um, I think he might be trying to make his potent his potential job in two years from now easier. So mm-hmm. that's my tinfoil hat take. Well, um, I don't want to get too far deep down the rabbit hole, but there is this thing that I want to make people aware of, which is Executive Order sixty one oh two, 
that was enacted on April 5th, 1933 by uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt. And that basically prohibited anyone from holding coin, from holding uh, gold. And, and so, of course, there are certain folks that are looking at that and saying, are they actually at some point going to ban owning crypto in the U.S.? It's happened before with gold. And it's not crazy to think that it will happen again with crypto at some point. And, well, like, what does that actually mean? And I don't know what the probability of that happening is, but it's certainly like autism capital, um, discount on Twitter. You said there's, there's, then I would agree with this take, which is there's absolute non-zero chance that the U.S. federal government comes for personal crypto asset seizure at some point for American citizens. And just today, again, uh, the SEC, um, I'm kind of like processing all this live. The SEC um, has like a general resources website link and they issued a press release today saying, you know, again, continue to exercise caution for crypto assets. It's sort of an investor alert. So um, this White House. That is such shit. That is Bitcoin is up 45% since the banking system had biggest collapse in, in, in 15 years. Uh, uh, yeah, look, I mean, look at the, operated, uh, there's all yeah. these great memes, which is like the white house also had a report on it like earlier this week. So of course, like, okay. Did you read the white house report? Did you, I, did you? I mean, it's like, do they actually understand the space? Like they, they, they were like, there's a great oh. chart saying like, which, which derivatives platforms. And like, these are like half of them, like are obviously like not legit. So let me, let me read these. Let me read these for anyone who didn't read the white house report, the top 10 crypto derivatives platforms, according to the U S government. BTCEX, Binance, BTCC. Here's the fourth one, Deepcoin. I went to Deepcoin's website on my phone. It didn't work on mobile. The website didn't work on mobile. BingX, so BitGet, OKX, Bybit, MEXC. Those are real. BitMart. Like they, they don't, they, they, they have no clue. They're so far off from knowing what these, what the, uh, what this industry looks like. It's, um, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty wild to see. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts around what's happening recently. Like, I want to zoom out. And just like, I don't want to go too much deep into what has happened in the SVB and some of the regional banks. And, but I mean, it, I'd be remiss not to like think about, like, okay, there's clearly something going on with a lot of banks, and more and more people are waking up to this idea. Of, okay, what actually happens when you deposit your money in a bank? And very quickly, trust can degrade in this environment where the world is uber connected and information moves really fast. And so these bank runs happen. Now, I'm not saying that all regional banks are are exposed like Silicon Valley or First Republic, but I mean, a lot of it is just social consensus, right? And if consensus can tilt really quickly, you saw it in Wall Street bets, you saw it now with, you know, uh, you know, with Silicon Valley Bank with like basically like, I think 35% of their depositor base, like wanted to withdraw on a particular day like like no single bank is like structurally engineered to like process that right and so yeah you like as a generation like you're you're waking up this idea of like okay well you kind of do value a lot of the core principles of, of crypto and you're right i mean i think you look at that and you you have a lot of really important certainties when you're interacting in crypto that just you don't have in the traditional system and more and more people are waking up to that yeah. And so like, I, I always like during this period, which, which I think is actually unprecedented. Like, I think we'll look back in this moment and say, there was, this was like a very important 
perhaps we're seeing another 2008 event unfolding in real time. And I, I sort of feel that. Um, but I was reminded in this period of like when I first discovered crypto, you just sort of think through different scenarios and say, okay, and what, what does the world look like when Bitcoin becomes like a global reserve asset? Like, what does it actually mean? And in one version, it's really kind of more rosy, which is, you know, it becomes like, uh, you know, things become denominated in Bitcoin and it becomes such an important thing that like every country kind of adopts it. But it's the more likely scenario is like, it's not an easy transition. And you can understand why like people that control the money printing don't like that. Um, and the, the, the second observation that I want to just to get your take on is, so like, if you think like regional banks have a problem, like fundamentally the problem is like this duration mismatch, right? Like you're holding these securities, um, you know, to maturity, but like, if you get withdrawals, you have to sell them. And if you're selling 0% like bonds for, for, there's like a very simplistic rule of thumb, which is for every inc like 1% increase in rates, like there's like some, like, like basically if you need to sell it, like the discount on that is, is like similar. And of course, like all these banks are holding 0% treasuries, treasuries are now three or 4%. And so if they need to sell those treasuries that they bottled, you know, a year ago at 0%, that creates a big gap. The regional banks got bailed out by, by the US government. What happens to all the central banks that are holding a lot of these treasuries at 0%? They also have liabilities mm -hmm. and pensions to fulfill. They also, by the way, they, unlike regional banks that got bailed out, they can't be bailed out and they can't print money as easily without consequences. Here's what happens the, to them? If you're a central banker in some sort of country and you're holding a lot of these treasuries, aren't you thinking about Bitcoin right now? Okay. Lot lot to break down there. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Lot, lot to break down. This is Arizona Empire, sir. Yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. a lot of thoughts in my mind. Yeah, clearly you had a yeah, good, good, uh, good little trip. A lot of time to think, huh? Um, a lot. A lot of time to think. Here, okay. Here's uh, the transition to Bitcoin as a global reserve currency. There is no scenario in this world where that is a smooth transition. The US dollar is the global reserve currency. Uh, there's no, we've, I don't think, I mean, we've never had the global reserve currency experience colossal inflation or hyperinflation or whatever it may be. And to people who say that that is not coming, I'm not trying to fear monger or whatever. And I'm sure people saw that, like saw the Balaji bet. Um, it's starting to feel like that at some point the U.S. is going to have to choose between keeping its banking system and keeping the U.S. dollar uh, from runaway inflation. Those are like the two. I don't think you like fast forward. Like I don't. I don't think it's the Balaji ninety days thing. Um, but I think it's like at some point, whether it's a year from now, or two years from now, or three years from now, the U.S. is going to have to make a really conscious decision between do you save the banking system or do you save do you save the U.S. dollar. And, and 10 times out of 10, they'll, they'll, uh, I think they'll choose the banking system. Um, and so then it's like, okay, what does that do, do for the US dollar? It gives it kind of this runaway inflation. And we've never seen a world where the global reserve currency, I don't think we have, maybe, maybe we have goes through this, goes through this extreme inflation. Yeah. So I don't think, I don't think it's an easy transition, but no. what, one last point, just to your thing about these sovereigns and these central banks holding treasuries. That is the bull case for Bitcoin here. You have, let's like 2012 to 2013 cycle was driven by libertarians and technologists. 2016 to 2017 was retail flooding in. 2020 to 2021 was institutional money, high net worth money, trying to 
get in trying to basically find upside in this colossal like you know covid world where money was being printed 2024 to 2025 could be driven by sovereigns in this race for defensive positioning against uh a world where the global reserve currency is inflating away so i've i've really gone full tinfoil hat on this no no (laughs) i mean is it because i fundamentally think that like i don't think we're crazy in thinking that um i just i just have this feeling that an intuition that these are really unprecedented times like probably more so than 2008 because a lot of what happened in 2008 you just didn't have a system an alternative system now you do and the world has become more connected and it just poses the question of like if 2008 would have happened and you had crypto around what would have happened then and there now the financial systems feel is increasingly fragile in other ways than it was in 2008 now you do have an alternative system and so yeah i mean it's going to be really interesting to observe that i probably will forecast or predict a few things regulator activity is going to continue to increase like if you didn't think the adoption of crypto is going to happen without regulators really ramping up their efforts to stop this then just look at what happened in china over the last 10 years like they've been trying to ban bitcoin and crypto forever because you know it allows citizens to kind of like for capital to flee a country that fundamentally has tried to stop that and so you know that's problematic right um when most chinese like nationals can only buy real estate and government bonds and now all of a sudden they can buy some like you know crypto then that's really problematic for them because they can't control that yeah and you know anyways that's just one example the other one is like i would encourage people to understand what has happened to bitcoin in moments where like there's been banking crises like uh, cyprus experienced a bank run and then Bitcoin really gained a lot of adoption there. And so, yeah, t- to say the least, like I've, I've been warming up to Bitcoin quite a quite a bit, especially not only because of macro uh, and not just Bitcoin for that matter, but like Bitcoin uh, at one point, I just didn't own any. Now I, I definitely do. Um, and I think a lot of that is also, we had Muneeb coming on. It's been very encouraging to see kind of the sentiment shift in the developer community. It seems like Bitcoin to like make it, to utilize kind of this like untapped like a lot of liquidity and capital that's kind of stuck there and do something more than that that's number one number two is obviously like all the stuff that's going on like if if there is a version where there's mass adoption it's probably gonna happen first with bitcoin and then flow into other kind of projects like of course really continue to be really encouraged by ethereum and some of the other like projects um you know and, and use cases but but yeah like at a fundamental level like I think Bitcoin really takes off first. I think that um, I want to dig into that, into just like your Bitcoin positioning for a second. But um, Bitcoin gets mass adoption if we are forced to adopt crypto in a way that is in a in a way that isn't like a pretty way. I'd say Ethereum gets mass adoption if we are able to adopt crypto in a way that is like good for the world i'd say things getting built apps getting built that are really friendly and like easy to consume and just better products that's the path for ethereum to get adopted the path for bitcoin to get adopted is i'd call it forced adoption is when people are looking for a way to opt out of the financial system and store their capital uh, in a in a digital bank that doesn't have any 
uh, any collateral risk. Then mm-hmm. Bitcoin gets adopted. Yeah, yeah. So let me let me ask you, Monty. So you rotated out of? Uh, do you rotate out of some alts or out of some ETH into out of some Bitcoin? cash? Out of some cash. Yeah. And what percent is of your? What's your like ETH to Bitcoin ratio right now? Eighty twenty. Eighty twenty. Uh, still continue to be heavily like I'm counting ETH and ETH. Well, actually, pure ETH and Bitcoin, it's like probably, probably 70 30. If I count other projects that are like part of the Ethereum, sure. then sure. it's higher, obviously. Uh, but a, from a pure comparison, probably, I mean, it's still heavily skewed towards ETH. And is there anything that could make you go into uh, allocate even more to Bitcoin? I uh, just want to tra- time the way that I rotate out of cash. I, I program, like I've always, the kind of approach is like I want to accumulate over time and like cost average my way in. So I'm I'm doing more of that. Yeah. With pure cash that's been like sitting there in a bank account. So yeah, it's pretty interesting. Like if, if you would have like, DOS, like there was some stat that I, that someone in a group like kind of posted, if you like, cost average your do- like dc8 in like dollar cost average into bitcoin since it hit like its peak of sixty one thousand two hundred or something since that moment of time to now you're, you're basically in profit um i fundamentally think that that's like again none of this is advice but for me it's it's difficult to time these markets and entry points but i just generally think that like when sentiment's very sour and like these kind of things are happening like it's just for me it's a better way to like not try to time the market and just kind of build a position um based on certain parameters yeah um and so that's kind of how i'm approaching it so i don't want to like buy all at once um but i am looking to answer your question concretely i'm looking to increase that ratio mm. more towards bitcoin and that's not to say that i'm like selling ethereum to buy bitcoin it's more so i'm like rotating cash into bitcoin yeah let, uh, let me ask you this it feels pretty clear that any american crypto investor should actively distrust this administration um and that the uh, the risk of holding your crypto on a in a in a custodied exchange is is getting to be a little bit scary. Um, what are your thoughts on holding holding crypto in, in inside of even one of the tier one exchanges right now? Just too too risky to do as an American, or or you think it's fine? Well, you have to counterbalance that. Are they going to properly set up their keys and manage like security? Right. You know, I, I continue to believe the U.S. is the, a country where the system and. Ju- the judicial system, you have to have faith in the courts. You ha- you just kind of have to. If not, then like, I don't know, <laughs> it's difficult to like operate. But I, I do have faith. And this is why I go back to this example of, it's been very interesting to observe how a judge responds and reacts to a case where the SEC is kind of one end of the spectrum, really aggressive, maybe overstepping. And then the judge kind of tones it back and says, wait a minute, let's actually look at the rulemaking and, and, and the what the SEC is allowed to do and not allowed to do. And let's objectively talk about this, which I want to give the, the the U.S. legal system an opportunity to respond to what is, to your mm-hmm. point, felt like a, a bully in the space that just wants to cut this and not give any guidance and go after certain companies. Coinbase meeting them three times a week and then just like, that feels like a bit of bullying. I want to understand how the court's interpret that and any kind of illegal judicial like response to that I think is going to be fundamentally important for me to form a, a full opinion on how this will kind of play out really but, good yeah so 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 that's it um 
And so I don't know how long that's going to take, by the way, but encouraged by like, like I'm not a, like Ripple, uh, some people are now like the enemy of your enemies, like my friend. And so like, look, I think Ripple has a lot of resources. It's been fighting a battle for years now. So these things are going to take, unfortunately, more time, but there's a few of them that I think will bring and shed more clarity. Um, I am investing and in, I will, I'm today, I, I committed to investing in another wallet, which is really kind of like, um, I can't talk mo a lot about it. I will at some point, uh, cause I want to talk to the team if they allow me to do that, but it's really leveraging account abstraction and a lot of like really cool principles that make it easier and more intuitive for people to, and also secure for people to like self custody their own assets. So thematically we mm -hmm. talked about wallets here with Xiao and a few, I think wallets are going to be very, very important account abstractions comes at a fundamentally important time where people should be more and more thinking about self-custody. Yeah. Now, I don't want to say take your coins off exchanges. Now, I'll balance that comment by saying I've been really impressed with Coinbase. Full disclosure, I have a position in Coinbase. But I just think that it's been refreshing to not only like understand the roadmap and the their willingness to like really just push the space forward. And, and as someone that has been in the space, like I want to support them. Right. And I fundamentally also think that it's a name that I track a lot to understand what the broader sentiment is Yeah. in, and look, you look at Coinbase and people don't understand their business. They don't understand the roadmap, their vision. And I think it's, uh, it doesn't get enough credibility from like wall street and crypto natives, right? It's sort of like really impressive to them because it, it's probably like a really kind of shitty position to be in, right? You're not in either camp and you always get shit from both camps, but even more impressive, I, they continue I, to put on a really no, cool fight and build cool stuff. Yeah, though, I, I, I do think that as Coinbase has embraced this more like on-chain mm -hmm. mentality, um, I'd I i I'd be hard-pressed to find people in crypto who are not behind behind Coinbase right now. And if and if you're not behind Coinbase's vision right now, I'm not sure you're what you're really doing in crypto right now. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Coinbase is on the front lines. I, yeah. I think the most important thing that you brought up there, Santi, was um, you have trust in the U.S. legal system. And I think yeah. that's an, an important reminder that um, ultimately Coinbase is ready to fight here. And they're in a really strong position to do this. And it's a reminder that the SEC does not make the law. The SEC makes allegations, which ultimately get tested in court. And oftentimes, as we're potentially seeing with Grayscale, the SEC is wrong, right? The, uh, mm -hmm. it, we talked about this on the roundup a couple of weeks ago. The SEC got picked apart by grayscale uh, by grayscale attorneys in the appellate panel in the DC Circuit, and you, you you can bet that Coinbase is ready to do the same in the coming months, and, and it'll probably honestly take years, the coming years. And uh, between grayscale and Coinbase, these two and firms, yeah, and Ripple, but wh whatever you think of those firms, like whether you like them or not, they are now the the someone posted this on Twitter, like the torchbearers are of stopping the death of crypto in the U S and I don't think that is overstated. So. Yeah. Like, look, if you're a politician in the U S and you're running for public office, I think next cycle, I wonder, I'm not, in, I'm, I'm not, I can't vote in the U S but like, I think this crypto is going to become a topic of conversation more important than before, which is an obvious take, but more so like I, I, I may be asking you, and I wonder what our listeners think that are based in the U.S. Like, how important do you think crypto is going to be in the next election cycle? 
Um, interesting, uh, interesting you say that. I've had been, so I'm in San Francisco and have just had a lot of meetings with folks in San Francisco and topic of conversation in nearly every meeting is 2024 elections. Um, it will be, I don't think it'll be a big topic of conversation. It won't be a top-down thing. It's not like you, you, you have, you know, Trump and DeSantis and Nikki Haley and Biden getting up there and like talking about crypto that much. I don't think that's going to be a thing. What I do think will be a thing is like where crypto money flows and who, which candidates that they support. And there is one candidate that basically the entire industry has pulled their money together and is pushing forward right now. And, um, because they are, because we, because people think that they will be pro crypto. So, yeah. 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 I, I would think so. Um, it's just fundamentally like just, uh, I want to really emphasize this point. Like, I think that good governments are ones that have really robust system where not a single person or entity can at will change core principles yeah. and, and rules. And I think that sometimes can be lost when you see all this noise. And so I, you have to have faith in that. If that's not the case, then change the system. But the US, I think, has a really good like three-pronged system of checks and balances. And when one comes up really, one is skewed, you're sort of banking on, at the end of the day, there's a legal interpretation of what, you know, certain people can and can't do. And like, also, like, I just like would love like to understand, like, you always want to go to first principles, like what is the harm that is being done here? You know, there's been a lot of harm done because there hasn't been an ETF approval. You know, like look at the discount of GBTC. It's been like seven, what is it? Seven billion dollars of like that gap. Like that, that's, a, yeah. that's yeah. a lot. <laughs> like what, at this point, like it's a trillion dollar asset class. It has a ton of innovation and human capital behind it. Like, come on guys. Like what's the end goal here? Consumer protection? Fine. No one in, most people in crypto are not, only the scammers don't want. Everyone in crypto can agree that we, yes, we want fair, transparent markets. Yes, we want information disclosures so that everyone's on the same foot because that then increases the likelihood of other market participants to enter crypto and it should be a fair market. Like we all agree that it's a transparent system, goddammit. Not everyone can read a smart contract, but that's okay. Like all of this information is in the public record. By default, it is a system that is built because it's transparent. How is that, how did that narrative all of a sudden become, this space needs to be, is super bad and stay away from it? Like, I don't know. Like, we're going to look back on this and say, okay, it was very clear why people didn't want this to gain adoption. But it, it's sort of like, if you, what's the end state? It's a, there's this notion of a fearic victory. Like, you win, but you lose so much. Do you really want like all like this, this innovation capital will not go away. Like, I think it's captivated the imagination of developers and people. And I just spent the last week with, uh, admittedly people that either don't like crypto or don't know much about it, more older people. And the way that I've been explaining it to more folks, and I tweet about this today, which is I'm not asking you to believe in any coin. So like before we went to, like they asked you like oh you're in crypto it's like oh you know but like you know they either come up with a, some weird thing like I love Cardano which you like which is like surprisingly like 
a lot of people that I meet are like, I love Cardano. You're like, oh, geez. every every Uber driver everywhere. Yeah, 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 exactly. And the other one is like, oh, you know, like FTX and all this crap. And you're like, listen, let's not even talk about price. Let's just agree on the reason of existence of this space. Can we agree that before crypto, you couldn't have digital property and immutability? Like those two properties are really fundamentally what makes crypto crypto special because it. you talk to anyone out there, they're like collector or they're a lawyer or they're a real estate investor or an artist. You're like, okay, wouldn't it be nice to now have the enforceability of of something digital, which everything now is mostly digital, property records, there's a lot of art that's digital, you know, information propagated in a digital manner. What it, wouldn't it be nice to have a seal of approval that says, this happened, and there's a record of that of time and space, and you can't change that, and no one can change that. And a lot of people say, well, in the US, like we trust our local office, like, you know, there's like a, you know, there's a public record. I'm like, fine, if you're not in the US and in other countries, then this is really valuable. But even in the US, having that redundancy, it's almost like an insurance policy. You bought a property, you have a deed, you have a land title, you own that, but it's also a digital record. And anyone like, and it's, it's, no one can modify that. And oh, by the way, the, the court can also recognize that record in a digital context, which cannot be tampered with. Now you tell me that you don't think that that's a killer use case. You probably don't know anything about business and how the world works. And then you then understand, and then the, the, the next question is, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I believe in, big, in blockchain, but not crypto. I'm like, that's like, that's like advanced crypto for dummies, which is like, you can't have the coordination and all the funky cryptography happen without a token, but you never want to say that to people. They'll kind of slowly understand that once they start using it. So you just say, okay, okay fine. Let's just, just go use crypto and then come back and like, tell me if, like, you know what I mean? But like, it's a bit of a rant, but that's been my approach now to a lot of people. And I bring this up because how do we, how do we like gain approval of people and how do we onboard people? And I think fundamentally that's been a problem of, of crypto. That's like a marketing problem that we have. There's no coordinated narrative on it. Unfortunately, there's a lot of focus on price, but I think if we just tone it back and say, okay, like, let's just understand how in your daily life, this could actually be super helpful. Everyone, everyone can agree on, I think that digital property and immutability core concepts and then you're saying which chain actually can provide that security, and then you, and then I think that's kind of the flow, um, and that I think should be more and more emphasized in the public discourse when we talk about why this space shouldn't be try to be killed. And so, anyways, I don't know what you think about that, but I'll stop talking. That was a good rap. Was a good... <laughs> I'm telling you, man. I, 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 there's a lot that I've been thinking about. Here's what I'd say. Um... Crypto is still this is a is a is GVT. It's general purpose technology that presents this like immense potential, but also has new challenges. And it um, when, whenever you have that, it's really important for policymakers and regulators and politicians not to play venture capitalist and not to try to guess which technology is going to be valuable and which isn't, um, and to remain. Uh, like to basically keep tech neutrality as a core yes. principle of good policy for for as long as humanly possible, and um, you know you have a whole industry of, of VCs like picking winners and losers is hard enough for the professionals. It's a it's a really dangerous game when government should should get out of it. And I don't know if you've ever have you ever heard of Minitel? Yeah. Do you, do you do you know Minitel? Here's a fun little history thing. Minitel was um 
this video text online service that was accessible through through phone lines. It was probably the world's most successful online service pr prior to the prior to the World Wide Web. It was uh, invented in France, and um, the in the internet's early days, the the French. Uh, government or france had a state-run it was a state-run service called minitel and it offered news directories and e-commerce the one thing that they got wrong is they said that they didn't need to adopt the internet they said that minitel was sufficient and that no new infrastructure was needed well you can i you can assume you can guess what happened to minitel there's no minitel anymore no. we shut down because they didn't adopt the internet um and I don't know, like, that's just a familiar, st like, you just think about that and replace yeah. Minitel with, like, the financial system right now. Absolutely. It's a familiar story, so. Yeah, I mean, th it's so crazy to think that, like, everyone now uses the internet, and it's a yeah. core piece of their flow, and, like, okay, guys, 2002, so the consensus was, this is worthless technology, and it should go away, because it created all this financial speculation and bubble that hurt a lot of people in 99. And so, you know, go away. Like, yeah. go look at interviews of Bill Gates and the Today Show. And like, you know, uh, and then the same company then dismissed smartphones. And so I think fundamentally, it is really hard to predict the future. There's a very, very few people that can like, they saw smartphones and the idea of what that would unlock and create new kind of opportunities. And so... Like, I just go back to this idea, like, there's really smart people in this space and like, you should never kind of bet against human creativity and innovation and like, certainly not in an open source context. Like, Matt, this is like, I think also something that is, should be more and more appreciated. Like all of this is happening in an open source, most of it is happening in an open source environment. And that fundamentally like expedites how we innovate by, by trial and error and people building kind of on the work of others and like that's that's here to stay and it needs to happen without going too much into technicals but it it is also uniquely enabled by crypto because the problem with open source in web 2 is that it's really hard to agree on contributions and sustain like the sustainability of the contributions like look at wikipedia it's open source there's all these mods that like correct information Wikipedia is interesting analogy because it's gone from being outlawed. Your professors wouldn't allow it. It was like you had to use Microsoft like Encarta or Encyclopedia Britannica, which is really expensive and was updated once a year. And now Wikipedia is like de facto, like the source of truth, if you will. Why? Because it's, it's in the open and people can contest certain pieces of information. It's being updated very frequently. Encarta doesn't exist anymore. No one's ever buying Britannica, Encyclopedia Britannica anymore. Um, Speak and for so that, well, I loved, I can, my parents like never want to buy it to me. So it's pretty expensive, but anyways, <laughs> um, so this is why, like I bought the Wikipedia NFT, if you remember, and then contributed yeah. to Pleaser Dow. What did, what did, I think, what did we pay for that? Doesn't Pleaser own that yet? Yeah. Pleaser own Like we bought it for a million bucks Yeah. so. Um, so anyways, I think. By the way, like, Wikipedia, my, Mike and I both, I, I, is, uh, whenever Wikipedia has, um. The like at the top, like con contribute, contribute, always contribute. Yeah. Well, you do, but that's not very, that, that's a great point because I, I wanted to bring that up. Very few people do that. Like they're constantly asking people for donations. It's a very unsustainable. I, I use Wikipedia like daily. I yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Think about like, in there's, this, 
there's yeah, always a disconnect with certain people having holes. <laughs> there's always a fundamental disconnect with really powerful technology because sometimes it provides so much value but doesn't monetize enough. And that is, I think, the problem with a lot of open source stuff like Wikipedia. Crypto, on the other hand, says, no, wait a minute, we have a token. And that token is going to represent a lot of the contributions. Now, not everyone's a contributor to Ethereum. But if you think about the people that earn Ethereum, miners, and these people that are providing security, or stakers, I'd say, that provide security to the network that then allows that to be the fundamental premise by which people want to build on top of Ethereum, like then, then you don't have that problem of constantly asking for donations. It's that the token itself represents this balance in the market that says it's, if it's valuable and you're contributing, that you are earning ETH or you're paying for ETH if you want to consume these open resources available to anyone, but they come at a cost. And from an economic perspective, that's like fundamentally a really powerful concept because then you really can yeah. build on the like open source systems that we talk about in a prior episode as well of like this like fallacy of what, what is it like the, the common common goods are problematic. And I think a, a token kind of really solves that from a coordination standpoint. At the end of the day, all of this is a coordination problem where people sometimes get a lot of value, but you can't coordinate and you can't agree upon how much you should pay for that water, a park, you name it, right? And so you have taxation systems. These networks have taxation systems, whether it's you're consuming gas or paying an ETH. Um, and so anyways, it really creates a very sustainable, I think more harmonious like system where contributors are being, being rewarded and it sets you up for a long-term viability where you can have these systems actually thrive without like a, an enforcement, a central government like saying, no, you got to pay taxes. So anyways, like, um, yeah, I think it's, these are the times just to kind of round out this out because there's other stuff we need to cover, but these are the moments where you really reflect on why am I actually here? Yeah. Why did, does this actually matter? And I think like if you've been around, I got to say, if you've been around for the last year, you're like an OG, OG, pick whatever NFT badge we're going to have to mint for all the people that have been through. Because it's what's happened in the last year, I think has been probably like compressed, like equally as important as what happened in the last like 10 years in crypto history. I don't want to diminish what has happened before, but certainly it's felt like, you know, it's been a lot. Yeah. Should we move on? Yeah, let's move on. I'm like, starting to get tired. <laughs> and this has been a monologue. I apologize, folks. Hey, everyone. Quick break from Empire to tell you about another BlockWorks channel that I know you're going to love. I've been in crypto full time for five years and have always struggled with one thing, which is keeping up with the next big trend. As soon as I wrap my head around MEV, we're on to app chains. As soon as I wrap my head around app chains, we're on to liquid staking derivatives. I'm sure you've been there. BlockWorks Research has solved that problem for me. Our team puts research, data, governance, proposal updates, models, and more into one really easy to use platform so I can always stay ahead of the curve. If I don't understand something, for example, I just pull up the platform, I can search for an L1, I can search for a protocol, pull up the platform at blockworksresearch.com, I search the term, there's always an amazing amount of insight in a really consumable way. Uh, right now, you can subscribe to the platform. It's 2500 bucks a year or 900 bucks a quarter. Hopefully, you can uh, make more than $208 a month by using the platform. If you can't, you're probably in the wrong business. But if you're not ready to subscribe to the platform today, you can subscribe to the research team's free newsletter. Uh, you can follow their Twitter handles today. Links in the show notes. Trust me, once you do that, you're going to want to subscribe to the platform. If you are ready to 
uh, to subscribe right now. I got you guys with a little hookup. Empire listeners get a 10% discount for the first 50 people who use the code Empire10. Got you back. Check out the links in the, sh- in the description to find out more. Now, let's get back to the show. All right. Can you see this? All right. As of Thursday, 1 p.m. Eastern, we are looking at a... Uh, so the airdrop just went live today. We're looking at a uh, $13.76 billion fully diluted valuation. Total airdrop current value is sitting at $1.75 billion. Uh, the latest price update coming from, I think probably from different DEXs, is a buck thirty-eight. How many holders do we have? We have 182,000 people have claimed, have claimed the airdrop. Mm-hmm. Um, who's holding this stuff? Arbitrum holders. The DAO is the biggest. Okay, so it's all the DAOs. Uh, Bin- Binance, Binance, it looks like. Uh, these are just where, where's the, where the token's being held. Mm-hmm. Um, 474 million claimed tokens. 40% of the tokens have been claimed already. Um, interesting. Yeah, this has been and the total amount like if of um eligible wallets like six hundred and like close to seven hundred thousand. Yeah. It's a big it's a big number. Yep. Yeah. No, it's I mean I'm like biased because I'm an yeah. early investor. Yeah. Hmm. Any takes on what what this does, or like thoughts on air? Like, I, I let's not talk. Uh, let's not talk about the price. But any thoughts on um, this airdrop actually feels different than other airdrops. I would I would put this and the blur airdrop in a different bucket of airdrops. Um, and what I mean by that is, I think that the well, o- only time will tell. But I think that the users that started using blur and started using really GMX because kind of like farming for the Arbitrum airdrop. I think those users will actually stick around. Unlike all path airdrops, um, where you kind of farm, you get the token, you dump the token, you move on to another product. Yeah. I actually think that uh, the products are starting to get good enough in crypto where these airdrops are like maybe a viable marketing strategy again. I mean, because, yeah. yeah, no, they are. But like it used to be you get the users, but you don't retain any of the users. I think that GMX, people started using GMX and they're like, holy shit, this is actually a great platform. I'm going to stick around. That, that, I mean, that's what you're banking on. And the fact that like, if you look at the Arbitrum ecosystem, like there's some, I would characterize the first version of airdrops as like, okay, we'll give you some free stuff. There's not much to do here, but come and claim it. Now, like there's a lot going on in the Arbitrum ecosystem, right? And there's a lot of apps like GMX and others that people use and discover and they stick around, right? It's not all users. Importantly, like just having, I mean, I'm close to the Arbitrum team. I know how thoughtful they were in, in trying to parse through and target these wallets, make them unique. So there was like, I think like they identified more than like 280,000, like same person, like wallets, multiple wallets correspond to the same person. And so, yeah, like they were close to Nansen and, and I think they were, they were just very methodical and if you look at the way that they rolled out their testnet way back when, they were very thoughtful and not rushing it. And where other projects tend to rush, like Arbitrum's just been focusing first on let's actually build security and 
have a stable network and like I appreciate like the network's pretty congested now or down like okay like but still they've been um they've been just thoughtful around it and you know it's good to see that right it, it certainly hasn't feel rushed uh but you know there is a time I think the time has come uh for a number of reasons that people should go listen to the Arbitrum episode that dropped last week uh, yeah. the reason for the token and to like bring on you know create this sort of council and decentralize the sequence there's a number of reasons why right and so it just uh there's a natural time and a place to have a token and yeah yeah are a big part of that kind of distribution yeah. strategy yeah i mean if you look at active addresses by chain uh arbitrum and Op optimism were basically mirroring each other and now it's uh i mean arbitrum is just 10 well what was impressive was that arbitrum had a comparable level of activity without a token and I think that fundamentally speaks to the value proposition of that network and the activity that's going on there and the services and apps that are available there. Now, you could argue like, okay, there, there was a time where like, people intimated, okay, there's going to be a token at some point. But I think a lot of it was organic. Not all of it was just like very opportunistic people. Time will tell, of course. And we'll have to look at yeah. the retention of that airdrop. Yeah. Um, let's talk about... Uh, Someone's got to correct me. Someone's got to DM me after this. I don't know if it's Euler. It should be a nasty post on YouTube, but yeah. No, I think it's like a, I think it's like a meme of people mispronouncing this. I'm going to call it Euler and someone can tell me why I'm wrong. But um, have you been following this hack? Yeah, yeah. So, all right, I'm going to try to give a, an overview on this Euler hack um, and then everyone can correct me and tell me why, why I just am, don't have a big enough brain to understand this. But okay, so Euler got hacked. Um, on Tuesday, the developments around the, the Euler finance exploit took this kind of unexpected twist, I think you could call it, after the Ronin exploiter, people remember there's this big Ronin hack, the Ronin exploiter sent two ETH to the Euler hacker with an on-chain note that you could read on Etherscan to decrypt an encrypted message. And if you looked at the GitHub repository linked to the message, it contained a security vulnerability, which suggests that the Ronin hacker was attempting to then fish the Euler hacker, uh, because if the Euler exploiter signed the message with the package, their private key could have been encrypted. The Euler team responded to the Euler hacker with a message advising them to be very careful using the encryption tool. So now you've got the Euler team. Euler team gets hacked by the Euler hacker, but the Euler team's kind of advising the hacker like, hey, don't open that. It looks suspicious. The hacker has been in. And the reason that they kind of suggest that they do that is because the hackers got all their money and the hacker had previously been in talks with Euler through these on-chain messages discussing the return of, I think it was like 90% of the funds, which is like roughly $190 million worth of crypto. So the TLDR is Euler hacker gets like 200 million bucks from Euler, from Euler finance. Then the Ronin hacker messages the Euler hacker trying to fish them, trying to get them to, uh, to basically send them, send, send them the, the hacked money. The Euler team sees that and they're like, hey, hacker, be careful out there because we need to get that money back. Um, so it's kind of unclear like whether these messages between the two hackers were part of an, an actual attempt to steal funds or if it was kind of just like two parties putting on a show. Um, the, and then last week, the, the Euler hacker sent 100 ETH to the Ronin hacker's wallet, which created confusion over potential links between them. And then the wildest thing is uh, people have been speculating that the Ronin hacker is allegedly... Lazarus Group, which at this point I think we've got enough for a movie. Um, but this yeah, is just well, the, crazy. the running hacker. I think the, um, that's been the Lazarus stuff is a pretty well known. I think the was crazy was 
everything seemed to be okay until, for no good reason, apparently the Euler hacker or Euler hacker sent 100 ETH to the Ronin hacker right. wallet. So right. it's like, okay, well, wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense in this plot. So, so yeah. like, so, but Euler or Euler hacker uh, hacked Euler for the hacker hacked Euler for 200 million. Hacker then sent 100 ETH to, to Lazarus, basically. Euler, the, the same guy, like, it's like, uh, it, it's like, it's crazy that there's no reason why they would send 100 ETH to someone that, like, try to, like, have them download a secure, like, a package that would have compromised and had to yeah. sign something with it that would have drained their wallet. Like, it's like, uh, that may, doesn't make any sense. No. So, anyways. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Pretty crazy. It's enough for a screenplay. Um, oh, definitely. You've been following the DeFi Lama drama? To some I just want to, to say that because it rolls off the tongue. Well, DeFi Lama drama, you know? Yeah, that's that's a good one. I have been following it. Are you close with that, that, that team? No, I just know a few people there, but I haven't talked to them while all this has been going on. Um, Basically, you have... Uh, like so, so it's not like so. Charlie basically created DeFi Llama and funded it and stuff like that. And uh, and then Xerox NGMI came onto the scene, joins the team or co-founded it or whatever. Has less equity than Charlie, funded it less than Charlie is like what I'm what I'm hearing from folks. Uh, but he's kind of much more public facing. And um, I mean, when you think of DeFi Llama, you think of like Xerox NGMI having built most of it, even though that's real. That's you know he. Maybe he didn't do as much in the early days, and now he's done a lot more. And so Charlie was like, "All right, guys, we got we got to monetize this thing. Let's do a token." And do, and uh, and Xerox NGMI was like, "We're not doing a token." And now you have you had these two factions of the company. It'd be like if you know Mike Mike was like, "We're launching a Blockworks token," and he posted that publicly on Twitter, and then I posted, "No, we're not launching a, a Blockworks token." And then if you're an employee, you have to be like, "Am I on Mike's side or am I on Jason's side?" Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, some of the people like the, the person who ran the Twitter account was like, yeah, token side. And then the person who ran the Telegram account was like, no token side. And um, and there's a bunch of drama. And uh, but now it seems like it's been uh, it's been resolved, saying that um, the fork had been. So, so what they did is they forked NGMI, f- forked the code, created a new thing called LamaFi. But it looks like that fork's been canceled and the website is going to continue to work on a single domain. Um, but I think it's just a reminder of the lack of clarity in terms of who owns what in crypto and uh, the, the idea of shared ownership of a project doesn't always elegantly map onto real world like ownership of things. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, it goes back to the prior point that I was making around why a token kind of fundamentally serves as a coordination mechanism. Now, there could always be disagreements of a, like in this case, the equity would have to map out certain tokens, right? Yeah. Because then the team would take a certain percentage of the usually how this works is the team would take a certain percentage of the total token, right? And then that would be distributed to all the contributors, i.e., employees of this company, um, which is fundamentally the core disagreement here between Zero X and GMI and Charlie. Mm-hmm. So they should just go and have a coffee, talk about ownership, and then, you know, yeah. for the good sake of the space, continue to provide a good service that DeFi Lama does. So, a couple of beers or maybe just skip straight to the vodka and uh <laughs> well I, the, it's always it's always a point, point of contention like this is yeah. not a crypto problem this is just a yeah. startup problem yeah exactly um i got that's all the oh oh sushi obviously well we we yeah. 
touch on sushi too much because we just did that whole okay that, the about point that i want to make is they, they similar to to my understanding uniswap's also gone this kind of subpoena and a lot of other DeFi projects have in this case uh it was i think the entity that was set up in the u.s just once the this um the master chef now which is based in the u.s they created a company and so they got subpoenaed and they try to set up a legal defense fund in the order of three million with a contingency of another million to you know basically kind of go through this process um and so interesting kind of governance discussions around that uh some projects did reach out to me and say hey what does it actually mean for if you have liquidity in sushi if you're using sushi like what could happen and i said well my understanding is it one is a subpoena so it's a request for information um and it's to the core contributors not like the smart contracts are deployed like you know like look at tornado like smart contract deploys smart contract now if it's immutable or not that's important things that probably we should understand is what what can like the upgradability of these contracts so if you're probably in liquidity can they freeze that liquidity can they stop that liquidity like usdc can right and so i encourage these teams to say hey have your engineers actually look at the code once you're an lp or you're especially if you're if you're an lp in some of these pools then does the team have any ability to upgrade a contract to freeze those funds or can they not and i think that's a more important question right yeah um and it goes for Uniswap as well. Now, I'm not a developer. I, I can read contracts, but not to this level of like sophistication. But it would be good to know, you know, yeah. Yeah. not just for Sushi, but for Uniswap and other protocols, right? Yeah. Um, so, my understanding is that um, I'm trying to think. About, uh, su- sushi is not the only one who who has got this, and that there are going to be many more of these in the in the coming maybe even weeks, but but definitely months. Um, uh, there are a couple, like when you get one of these, I don't know if this is the case in Sushi, but I know another team that um, will we'll, we'll probably make it public soon that um, they're being asked to hand over all of their, like every Telegram message the founders ever sent, every email the founders ever sent, every Slack message anyone at the company has ever sent. And it's a, uh, yeah, it's, um, yeah, just yeah. Kind of probing around there with the SEC. But I think yeah, here... Vor, uh, Voorhees, I, there's, I think Voorhees had a really good take on this, which is because Shapeshift basically decentralized the company, not basically, Shapeshift decentral- had a centralized company, decentralized the company, lost 99% of their users because, because of it, but in order to keep operating uh, in a way that Eric felt was uh, along the ethos of how they wanted to operate, he did it. And his tweet nailed it. He said, Sushi created a, le- a legal entity in order to reduce liability. But then that entity and that individual, Jared, associated with it, got subpoenaed. He said, PSA, public service announcement, if there is an entity, it is not a DAO. Don't let lawyers talk you into incorporation unless you want to be in it, unless you want to be a corporation. Um, and I think we're going to see a couple more of these coming soon. Yeah, I mean, the, there's a lot also going out after Terra. Yeah. Right? People, oh, uh, do you see Doe? Doe just got arrested. Uh, pro- yeah, but I guess that's a good way to end this. Like, yeah, apparently Doe got arrested in Montenegro. Yeah, uh, haven't been like I've seen some reports, but uh, hasn't hit mainstream media or the police hasn't come out. Interpol saying confirmed yet, and this is Thursday. So, yeah. Oh, also, there's rumors that he was there. Like he was in Serbia, and I guess yeah, was close to Serbia, and so yeah. The SEC also sued Justin Sutton for the unregistered offering and sale 
um, and token trading, manipulative token. trading, unlawful touting mm -hmm. of crypto asset securities. Uh, and, and some celebrities settled already. This is like Akon and Lindsay Lohan and a few Jake others Paul. that have. Jake Paul. Yeah. Who? Uh, I think Jake Paul. Yeah, Jake Paul too. A lot, they, they've settled because they were being compensated and didn't disclose it. So, yeah. So, um, what's the lawsuit for Justin say? Oh, the lawsuit alleges that Sun sold billions of Tron and BTT as uh, securities and failed to register with the SEC. And uh, he's accused of fraudulently manipulating the secondary market for Tron through extensive wash trading. Wash trading through employees and whatnot. Yeah. Did he also lose his diplomatic status with one of these Caribbean islands? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think um, yeah, interesting. Cool, man. Feels like a good place to end. I think so. I think we covered most of it. Like we, we didn't talk on macro, but you know, we did talk about the regional banks and how that implicates implications crypto, Coinbase, Sushi, Arbitrum. Yeah, things have been great, man. Any any parting thoughts or good books or movies? Exciting episodes coming up. Yeah, we do have exciting episodes coming up. I'll plug that. Yeah. Um, we have Kane. We have Kane from Synthetics coming on on uh, on Monday. Pumped to talk about that. the uh, The resurgence is, of Synthetics is uh, is fun. Uh, big, yeah, it's gonna be really cool because Kane has so much. In, I mean, he's an old timer. He's yeah. seen, he's seen a lot. Yeah, uh, we have a big conversation with uh, Amy and Andrew. Uh, the head, the the two uh, crypto leads at Morgan Stanley. Um, uh, both two like two of my favorite people in in, in the space, and they're very crypto native. Um, inside and they're both inside of Morgan Stanley so that'll be a fun conversation yeah um yeah good stuff coming up good great stuff coming up yeah um all right well, so this place uh, feels like a good place to end thanks everyone for listening appreciate uh you uh, bearing through all my rants and it's great to be back so we'll be back here next week see you on Monday all right 